You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Barry Broman. Barry's got an interesting life story. He was an AP photographer in South Vietnam prior to deploying there as an infantry officer in the Marine Corps. After his time in the Marines, he wound up joining the Central Intelligence Agency as a case officer. And today we have the opportunity to talk to Barry about all of those varied experiences under fire. Barry, thanks for being on The Spear. My pleasure. Let's start off with being an AP photographer as basically a teenager in South Vietnam. How did that come about, and what was it like being under fire as a journalist? Okay, I went to University of Illinois in 1961 on a scholarship, and after one year, my father, who was an Air Force officer, got orders to become a civil engineer advisor to the Royal Thai Air Force, and asked if I wanted to drop out for a year and get some experience in Southeast Asia, which I did. So uh, that's how I got to Bangkok, and the deal was I would spend one year out and then return to college. That gets you to Bangkok. What gets you to South Vietnam? So after two weeks of playing tennis all day and drinking all night, my father decided I needed to have a job, otherwise I'd go back to college in the fall. So at the University of Illinois, I'd been a photographer for the Daily Illini. I had clippings. I had some experience. So I went down to the Associated Press office in Bangkok, showed them my clippings, and asked if uh, they needed a photographer. Just so happened, in 62, there was a, a crisis in Laos. There were U.S. Marines and U.S. Army troops coming into Thailand. An AP's photographer was a local who didn't speak English. So they hired me, and that's how I got my job. I was... I was a Thailand photographer, but I also had assignments in, in Cambodia and South Vietnam, and that's where I was first shot at. What was that experience like? Well, it, was, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't very serious because it didn't last very long. I was working for a photographer named Horst Foss, a German photographer, AP, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. And uh, when I went over to Saigon on assignment, he said, let's go down to the Delta, uh, Mekong Delta, where the uh, USS Card, it was a World War II escort carrier, was bringing helicopters into Vietnam. And as they came through the Delta, Foss wanted pictures of this. 
So we got to a position out in the countryside in rice paddies. Uh, the, the river was not too far away, and Foss found an old French watchtower that had been hit by uh, uh, probably a mortar or something a long, long time ago. It was very frail. And he said, I'm too heavy. You go up, you take my Leica with the 400 millimeter lens, and you shoot the picture as the aircraft carrier comes up the river. So I did that, and it was a, it was a good shot. Just then I heard, bing, bing. I said, what's that sound? He said, no, that's the Viet Cong. They're sniping at you, but they're terrible shots. So I kept shooting, and just then, bing, they hit the, uh, the, the bullet, hit the metal around me. So I said, I think we got the picture, Horst. Here's your camera, and I dropped it down to him. There were a couple more rounds came through, and uh, we, we left the scene with, with the uh, pictures. After taking fire as a civilian journalist, you wind up in the Marines as an infantry officer. I was commissioned in 67. The Marine Corps let me go to grad school for a master's in Southeast Asian studies. Went on active duty in 68. In 69, I was assigned as an infantry officer, platoon commander in Hotel Company, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. Which the Marines refer to as 2-5. Where was 2-5 located at the time? 2-5 was, uh, well, the whole 5th Marine Regiment was uh, based in Anwa, about 25 miles southwest of Da Nang, and the 5th Marines were the closest uh, Marine Regiment to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and our main job was to stop infiltration coming off the trail and attacking Da Nang. As a platoon commander, you've landed in South Vietnam, a country you've been to before, a country you've been shot at in before. What was going through your head? Well, as a platoon commander, uh, uh, first of all, the Marines had a lot of experience uh, in Vietnam. This is in 69. Uh, in the seven months I was on the line with 2-5, uh, I had four company commanders, all of them outstanding. My, uh, my platoon was 24 strong, including uh, corpsmen and uh, machine guns, which is about half the TO strength, but that's okay. On my first mission, we were up in the mountains on Operation Taylor Common. I took a patrol out, and we were ambushed. So that was an experience when uh, <laughs> when the, everyone turns to you and say, "What? What now, Lieutenant?" And this is where you uh, you earn your um, your pay. With such an understrength platoon, did you have the table of organization requisite staff sergeant, platoon sergeant, or were you reliant on more junior Marines? No, I had a very good staff sergeant as my platoon sergeant. Most of the Marines had been under fire because the battalion had been active up in the, up in the mountains on the, toward the Lao border. And so everybody except me knew what to do. And we got out of that, uh, that scrape with, uh, with uh, one wounded and no problems. So this Operation Taylor Common, very early in your, your deployment, what happened in the next seven months? Well, we were based in Anwa, Regimental Combat Base, and uh, a lot of our activity was in an area nearby known as the Arizona Territory. And this was probably the most fought over turf in all of the, the AO of the 1st Marine Division, because this was astride the, uh, the access coming off the Ho Chi Minh Trail down to Da Nang. And Da Nang Air Base. Da Nang Air Base at the time was the busiest airfield in the world. And a lot of the activity there 
was uh, in support of uh, Marines and tactical bombing all over. So it was a major target for the NVA. What was the terrain like in the Arizona Territory? Essentially on the flat, it's rice paddy. The, the indigenous uh, inhabitants were essentially pro-Viet Cong, so there was a Viet Cong element, and they supported the, um, the NVA as they passed through. It was broken terrain. There's no roads. It was, uh, it was uh, difficult because you had uh, uh, fighting positions. Every small village had bunkers, and so when we came across NVA and bunkers, it was, it was particularly difficult. Booby traps were everywhere. The division was losing one, one leg a day. And um, so it was, it was challenging. On one occasion, we, we caught an NVA regiment in the open, and along with the 1st Battalion, we killed about 600 bodies were floating down the river to play on for a couple of days. But generally, it was patrolling. What would a patrol look like in Hotel 2-5 at that time? So we went out on company-sized patrols, so we're looking at 150 men, perhaps. Sometimes we had Amtraks with us. A couple times we had tanks with us. We were uh, always within the, um, the artillery fan of uh, 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines, who were at Anwa. We had close air support, which was uh, very effective. Uh, and um, it was, uh, you know, we had the initiative, but we're always looking for the NVA. And uh, sometimes we found them, sometimes they found us. And were these patrols foot mobile? Were you in vehicles? How did you get around the Arizona Territory? Pretty much on foot, uh, spread out. If we were lucky, we had some Amtraks with us so we could put ammo and uh, water and chow inside. Uh, once we had uh, 106 recoilless rifles mounted on top, which was very effective. But mostly being in the infantry, we were on foot. And you, as in your role as a platoon commander, what were you carrying? I carried uh, the same as everybody else. Especially uh, if we're humping in the mountains, we would have uh, carry your, your basic load, ammo. I had an M16, I had a 45. Uh, we'd carry uh, rounds for our mortars, so everybody split that up. Uh, we'd carry uh, typically three to five uh, canteens, so it's a pretty heavy load. Mm-hmm. Have flat gear. You're carrying all this equipment. Who else is in the platoon headquarters with you? Well, in the platoon CP, it's it's generally uh, me, uh, corpsman, and uh, my radio operator. Sometimes we'd have an FO for air, and uh, they would be with me. But uh, as I say, typically we moved as a company, so um, I'd have my platoon, and then we would. I was also after after only about six weeks as platoon commander, I became company XO. So I spent most of my time as the XO with the hotel company, and I was in the, in the company CP with the company commander, with the gunny, with uh, at least one radio operator. Sometimes we had a Kit Carson uh, ex-Viet Cong scout with us. What was that transition like, going from being a brand new platoon commander to all of a sudden being the XO, and if something happened to the skipper, you know, the company commander? Well, I was in a bit of a new situation in that I had a, a master's degree, and uh, I was a first lieutenant. So I was a senior lieutenant in the company, and um, 
every time we would lose a lieutenant, which happened regularly, I would then take over the platoon. So I ended up commanding all three of the rifle platoons uh, until a new uh, replacement came in. Then I reverted to uh, XO. We've aired other episodes on the spear about the fighting XO and kind of what was your role as the fighting XO in the Arizona territory? Well, I split my time pretty much between uh, admin things in the rear that XOs are supposed to do and then time uh, on the line where I was involved in numerous firefights and took over different platoons. I I thought it went pretty well. We, as I said, seven months I had four company commanders, captains. One of them was... uh, emergency medevac and uh, one guy was short when I got there and then uh, the last skipper I had was was uh, he was getting short by the time I moved on to be a civil affairs officer for the second half of my split tour but um, everybody knew their job and, and did it well so I was never really too concerned. You mentioned short and you mentioned transitioning to civil affairs. For listeners not familiar with Vietnam slang, what does getting short mean? Short-timer, that's the guy that's going home pretty soon. And uh, typically with short-timers, uh, you gave them a little slack. Uh, we, would, we would let uh, troops in the bush go back to uh, battalion headquarters a little early sometimes. So everybody, Marines had 13-month tours in Vietnam. The Army had 12-month tours. And in the Marine Corps, among officers, we had split tours. So you could you'd plan on, if you're an infantry officer, spend half your tour on the line, in the infantry, in the bush, and half the time in a staff position. That way, everybody got a chance to get shot at. How did they determine whether you started in the bush or you started on staff? Generally, you started in the bush, uh, which is always the best way to do it. And then after let's say six, seven months are up, you rotate to a position that could be, uh, you could stay in battalion and work in S2, S3, S4, or S5. Uh, Or you could, in my case, uh, I wanted to be in civil affairs. I had some experience in Vietnam. uh, And so I was uh, was sent to G5, Civil Affairs Division Headquarters in Da Nang. What was the feeling like as you were getting short? Well, you know, it didn't really bother me too much. You know, I was in a, in a staff position. In fact, I, I, I never really got short. I extended my tour uh, in civil affairs for six months. As part of that assignment, uh, I was sent to Bangkok to be liaison officer from uh, the MACD command. In all of the firefights, in all of your patrols with Hotel 25, what stands out? There was a bad day in the Arizona in the spring of '69 uh, when uh, Hotel Company was sent to reinforce Golf Company, which had run into a, a big firefight. At the time, I was in Anwa and I was convoked by the battalion uh, S3 ops officer, major, telling me that uh, Hotel Company was being moved uh, to support Golf Company and that. Uh, they needed to take an emergency resupply of food, ammo, etc., and that uh, he needed me to take a group of uh, Marines that were in the rear on an emergency basis and fly in, chopper into a landing zone where we would then uh, receive the resupply, ammo, food, water 
for the company, and the company would uh, make every effort to join us before dark. So um, this meant rounding up everybody in the rear. Now, in the Marine Corps, if you had uh, three Purple Hearts, three wounds in the tour, you were sent home. If you had two tours, uh, two Purple Hearts, what we did as a rule, we would take people with two hearts and try to get them in a position in the rear so they wouldn't get a third Purple Heart. And uh, we probably had half a dozen fellows in that category, plus a few guys coming, a few guys going home, a couple guys on limited duty from wounds, et cetera, et cetera. So I picked up about, I'm going to say, eight or nine Marines, most of them with two Purple Hearts, all of them combat veterans. And uh, we went to the bush. Chopper sent us in. I had a radio operator. We had a couple of working uh, machine guns that were in the rear. We were heavily loaded, went out. Chopper dropped us on a little piece of high ground surrounded by rice paddies. We offloaded, the resupply choppers came in. We offloaded the gear and set up a tight 360 uh, with our sea rats and whatnot in front of us, uh, set up our machine guns. Um, I, I spoke to the... Uh, Artillery people, we had on-call artillery all around us if we needed it. Uh, we had uh, tactical air available if we needed that. And uh, then for a few hours, we just uh, sat and waited. Obviously, the, the NVA, the enemy, knew where we were. They'd seen us fly in. They'd seen all of our ammo and chow coming in. We waited for the company to join us. And after you and your eight or nine Marines have been dropped off on this hill, what's going through your head? You've been in a mobile war so far, and now all of a sudden you're stationary. Well, it was, uh, it was, it was a difficult day, and uh, we all knew that we had to get out there for the resupply for the company. Uh, we knew the enemy knew where we were. We knew that if uh, the company didn't make it, we were in deep trouble, and I was all set to call in my on-calls, and uh, fortunately, I had really outstanding Marines, and, and everybody knew that this was a, this was a drastic measure, but in the, in the best tradition of the Marine Corps, the company made it in time, as promised, and of course, I'm on the radio talking to the skipper, and they're making a forced march. They've, they disengaged the firefight, and they're making a forced march to my position to uh, receive uh, all of the gear, all of the uh, supplies that we've got. So they they came in uh, just before dark and tied up around us, formed a, a tight 360. When the company showed up, was there a palpable sense of relief amongst the eight Marines, nine Marines you brought out there? <laughs> there, was a, there was mutual uh, relief on both sides. We were really happy to see 150 armed Marines, and they were happy to see ammo and food and water. So it was uh, it was a symbiotic relationship, and we waited. And uh, sure enough, we were we were hit that night by a ground attack, and uh, it was a sharp sharp encounter for about 10 minutes, and then uh, silence. After the firefight, were you able to go back to sleep, or were you up for the rest of the night? No, no, it was pretty much an all-nighter at that point. It was, we were at about uh, 75% when we when we settled down, and immediately went on 100%. We had some listing posts out, and uh, we were waiting for them when they came, and we, we had illumination, 
six from our 60 millimeter mortar they they didn't have uh, the surprise that they were hoping for and then we had you know well-aimed uh, machine gun single uh, riflemen taking out uh, their counterparts as they came so it, it wasn't that dramatic it was it was fierce for a while a couple of wounded uh, uh, nda uh, tried to crawl away but we found them where they died before they made it back to the lines as the sun came up the next morning what was going through your head well the first light we were out out and uh, scouting about making sure there were no no uh, other people coming or hiding because it was broken terrain that's why i had a machine gunner and a couple of marines with me as we checked the lines you run across the captain in the bomb crater what was your initial plan of attack? What went through your mind? Well, it looked like there was just one person down there, and uh, I spoke a little Vietnamese. They lie, die, come here, too high, surrender. And uh, he came out shooting, and so we shot him. I shot him. After you shot him, and you collected his paperwork, you collected the dog tags, what told you to keep that? Well, I gave up uh, all of the equipment, you know, all of all of the stuff that he had, uh, like his diary. That that was that looked very interesting. So all the documentation immediately went in. When we when I went back out, I took that stuff and and uh, passed it off to the uh, the S two at at the battalion. The only thing I kept was one of his dog tags, and I and I turned that in when I wrote the uh, citation up for him years later in, in Hanoi. Did you ever hear what happened to that citation paperwork? No, never a word. We didn't have very warm relations with the uh, the uh, the Vietnamese uh, when I was up there, so I didn't expect anything. I just did it as kind of I felt I owed it to him. What gave you that sense of obligation? There were no other witnesses that, that were alive on his side, and I thought that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the, the guy probably would have had a silver star if he'd been if, if, if he'd been a Marine. After your tour on the line with Hotel 25 and your, your tour in civil affairs, you wind up leaving the Marine Corps. What happened next for you? Well, when I was in grad school, one of my professors asked if I was um, interested in the CIA, which actually I wasn't. I was planning to go back to Associated Press. I had a job waiting for me in, in Asia. I told the prof I wouldn't mind talking to the CIA. I'd never thought much about it, frankly. So he set up an appointment and uh, with a recruiter. There's a recruiter that uh, covered the Pacific Northwest. I was in Seattle at the University of Washington in, in Navy ROTC. So um, the guy says, uh, wow, you know, you're the kind of guy we're looking for. You've got uh, area experience. Uh, you've got a master's degree. Uh, you speak the language. Uh, Thai language, and uh, so uh, you could be either an ops officer in the field, you could be an analyst in Washington. And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps, and the first thing I'm going to do is go to war, and I'm not even thinking beyond that. So the guy said, okay, no problem, take my card. If you live, call this number six months before you get out of the Corps. So I took the card, and uh, and I lived, and I came back, let's see, I came back in 70, I was Camp Pendleton press officer for a few months, and I 
was promoted to captain, and they gave me an infantry rifle company, a hotel 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines. And uh, with uh, six months to go in the Corps, I called the number, and expecting that they would not, <laughs> they never heard of me. And the guy says, um, okay, let me get your file. He came back the phone. He said, okay, meet me at the Coronado Hotel in San Diego Thursday at 7 o'clock. And I met him, and I signed up uh, in the CIA. So I had 15 days between the Marine Corps and starting my uh, career training class uh, in the clandestine service of CIA, uh, where I worked for the next 25 years. You tell the story in your book, Risk Taker, Spy Maker, about winding up in Cambodia as the country is falling. What was that like from the perspective of now being a civilian again under fire? Well, when I joined uh, CIA, the clandestine service was organized geographically by division. So I was in East Asia Division. And my whole plan and one of the reasons I joined the agency was I wanted to become a Southeast Asian specialist. I already had my AP time. I had my Marine Corps time. And so I wanted to do more in, in the area. At the time, the only fighting going on, well, the, the Vietnam War was still going on, but the Americans had pulled out, fighting Americans had pulled out. But uh, Cambodia was a hot war. There were no American troops involved, but the CIA had... Um, a station in Phnom Penh, and we had Singleton officers in sites and provincial sites around the country. Uh, most of the CIA people were known to the Cambodian government working in liaison, whether it's uh, training or supplies or sharing information. Uh, only a couple of officers were not declared because they handled uh, uh, internal agents that had been recruited. I was one of those two officers, and I had French language, the State Department, before I went out to Cambodia. So I handled some of the most senior assets, uh, including a couple of uh, flag-ranking military officers. So my Marine Corps experience uh, helped me enormously. First of all, I was uh, in numerous firefights because Phnom Penh was surrounded most of the time and I was uh, frequently out uh, checking the situation uh, with a couple of other officers. I was dealing with uh, very senior officers who were reporting and um, essentially they were working for me for pay and uh, and everything, most of our conversations were in French, a little bit of English, a little bit of Cambodian. But um, it was very useful to have combat experience and military experience uh, in that that uh, first assignment to Cambodia. And I was there until the country fell in April 75. I was on the last fixed-wing plane out. I took some people out. And I took some files out. What was it like being on the last plane out? Well, it was tough. It was really tough. The Unlike Vietnam, where we, you know, there was an enormous amount of uh, equipment uh, on the ground. The, the Cambodians fought to the last round. There were two bombs left at Pochentong Air Base uh, at, at Phnom Penh. Uh, about uh, two weeks before the fall of Cambodia, I went out to the northern dike, the northern 
defensive perimeter where the, uh, the Cambodian Airborne was uh, located. Their Airborne Battalion had a TNO TO of 512. They had 52 men and a captain running the battalion. And uh, everybody knew that time was running out because the Congress had uh, cut off all support to uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. So uh, it was a very difficult period right at the end. After the fall of Cambodia, you stayed in the Central Intelligence Agency for about another 20 years, right? That's right. I served in, uh, after Cambodia fell, I spent the next five years in Thailand. After that, I was in Paris. I was uh, then in uh, Indonesia. I uh, went back to Thailand to run a small war in 1992. That was, it was a, a covert action paramilitary operation inside Cambodia. And then I was... Uh, chief of station in Rangoon before I retired. From being shot at as an AP photographer, to being a platoon commander and an EXO in Hotel 25 in the Arizona, to the fall of Cambodia, to running a covert war in Thailand in the early 1990s, your career has been about combat. What are the key takeaways, you know, kind of that you learned along the way that kept you alive and made you successful? Well, in Vietnam with the Marines, it had to be the, the men I was with. You know, we relied on each other. The training was excellent. I, I think I got away with uh, a fairly easy tour compared to some of my friends that didn't make it back. Uh, in the agency, again, I'm dealing very often with, uh, with agents who are senior officers, either in uh, the diplomatic, military, uh, police some of this especially in Cambodia when we were, we had probably 30,000 men under arms that we were supporting with our uh, with our asian allies and i was i went inside cambodia numerous times and talked to brigade commanders all of whom were basically uh, being supported by the americans and our friends so my Marine Corps training helped enormously. We're taking a lot of fire. If you if you didn't have the experience of being through that, uh, it could be difficult. But in, as it turned out for me, and again, I'm dealing with top people on my side, our side, and uh, among our assets, really, really good, brave people put their life on the line. So it, it worked out very well. What prompted you to recount these stories in your book? Well, I'm essentially a storyteller, and uh, over the years, numerous people have said, you know, you got you to write these things down. And so the Risk Taker Spy Maker was uh, essentially a bunch of stories put together chronologically, and a, a lot of the stories are, are out there in the book, uh, starting with the AP and then the, then the Corps and then with the agency. But... Um, of course, it had to be approved by CIA headquarters and certain things. We don't talk about sources and methods. That book uh, came out was quite successful. And uh, Barry, as we go to wrap up, is there any, you know, for the junior and aspiring leaders, you know, one piece of advice you'd give them? So the Marines out there, I'd say, trust your gunny. If you're in the infantry, I had two outstanding gunnery sergeants, one a big Samoan, Another, a tough little uh, Italian from Brooklyn, New York, with uh, Silver Star, Bronze Star, and Three Hearts. you gotta, you got to listen to your NCOs. I think that's wise advice. Barry, thanks for being on The Spear today. My pleasure, Tim.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.